Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And this is episode 137. And today, my guest is Dr. Russ Best. Hi, Russ. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Lauren. How are you? I'm good under the circumstances. Um, the last few podcasts I've done has, has been in the, uh, in the context of this weird, um, horrible pandemic. Um, but we're all making the most of it here, doing things like podcasts and so on um and uh you know i'm ever so grateful for the technology that we have available um not just for work you know friends and colleagues and clients and athletes and team meetings and so on it's, it's pretty cool um and it always blows my mind like with yourself although your accent may suggest that you're uh, based more locally you're about as far away as you can get aren't you why, why don't you give us a bit of an overview of um you know, of, of, of who you are, who, who is Dr. Russ Best sort of thing, and uh, where you're based, and then we'll get on with it. So I'm originally from um, North Yorkshire, in the middle of Captain Cook country, and came to New Zealand um, from Teesside University a couple of years ago. Um, made the mistake of moving in the middle of a PhD, um, and also try to plan a wedding and all stuff like that at the same time, which was entertaining. Um, but I'm now based like at Winter. Yeah, that's it. You've got to inflict something upon yourself, I guess. Um, so I'm based at Wintech, which is the Waikato Institute of Technology. Um, I teach sports nutrition and biochemistry there. And then I also um, look after our master's program and head up our environmental ergogenics and polo science research groups. Uh, and you're still very busy, clearly. It's <laughs> a lot of stuff. So you're in New Zealand, though, aren't you? Because not everyone's going to know where the Waikato yeah so we're um in new zealand um a couple of weeks ago i think you had ed maunder on who's up in auckland that's right um we're about uh two hours south of there um and then i'm self-isolating um about an hour further south from there in the middle of uh dairy country for us yeah that's right yeah offline we were just chatting weren't you you have a backup means of transport as well you've got a horse (laughs) i love it yeah um we're so not just famous for cows in the Waikato, um, we also have a, a very big racing industry um, and polo and other equestrian events. Um, so we like to bill ourselves as the home of champions, um, or the mayor does anyway. That's brilliant. That's a very Yorkshire thing to do as well, isn't it? <laughs> Champion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you can't boast about yourself, you, you know, you're doing something wrong, aren't you? Uh, yes. Yes, that is, that is true, mate. All right. So the reason... Um, why we're going to have this conversation today is based on two things. Um, you had sent over some work over to me um, relating to your primary area of uh, research of late. And, but also, I remember enjoying your presentation you gave at ISENC, um, dare I say, it's a while ago now. Um, and um, although the primary sort of focus of this conversation is we're going to be looking at menthol um, as a potential ergogenic aid, um, you know, for athletic performance. But I think more than just menthol, I think this is sort of, um, well, this for my podcast, at least, this will be the sort of the start of a, a, a bigger delve into this area of these sort of novel, novel forms and, and compounds that, you know, represent yet another really quite exciting tool in our toolbox that I 
like to refer to, um, you know, I've said this many times, one great thing about, you know, this journey that I and everyone else has had in sport and exercise nutrition, you know, in my case, sort of going back 10, 15 years now, it, it is, is just this sort of growth and development is, is sort of like a tsunami of, of, uh, of things that just keep growing and developing. It's really exciting times for us. Uh, and it's nice to <laughs> nice to use phraseology of exciting times in this not so great times, um, because sport and exercise nutrition is growing rapidly, and it is a very young area within sports science and and so on. And um, you know, listeners will all be aware of of things like um, carbohydrate mouth rinsing, um, and also you know the interests in sort of oral administration of, of, of caffeine, uh, like caffeine gums and, and so on and so forth. And of course, this area with menthol um, is another one of those, um, you know, uh, strategies that has come to light, thanks to you and some of your um, other colleagues around the world in this. So I think, um, I think this is going to be really interesting. And I'm really interested in uh, learning from you about this, Russ. But let's just kick this off first with, um, you know, how it's nice to have a bit of history. How did you get into this? Like, why this? Of all the things you could do, why yep. this? Um, so it's funny you mentioned Isaac because I was sat at Isaac in 2014, um, and I think they had a sort of 10 hot topics type session to wrap up the conference, um, and someone presented uh, Toby Mundell's paper or from 2010 actually on um or 2009 2010 on um menthol mouth and i'd been looking for a phd topic i was going to go down sort of a exercise genetics route initially but funding fell through for that um and i just saw that idea and it really resonated with me um so the fact that something that made you feel cooler would make you perform better um and empirically so was quite exciting so i went to um my sort of master's supervisor, Dr. Nick Berger at Teesside, who um, taught us environmental physiology as well. Um, and Nick was sort of equally excited, a little bit cautious with there only being one paper at the time. Um, but once we dug into some of the more mechanistic literature underpinning it, we thought this seemed to be a feasible research topic and something that we could push on and do. Unfortunately, a couple of other people at the same time around the world um, had similar thoughts and started producing some quality work. Yeah, brilliant. And it's good. It, 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 it's growing rapidly as well, isn't it? This particular area. Um, I think that's exciting. Maybe you could give us, um, if we combine this um, into your introduction there about, you know, before we get into menthol specifically, I mean, what what's all this about taste and you know, we, we, I mean, you know, because historically with sports nutrition, you know, we start talking about, oh, let's, right, let's, let's do a pasta party and we're going to carb up, stuff as much, you know, this, this nutrition and calories down our, our gullets and, you know, and, and then we start talking about, well, let's start working on, um, you know, uh, super, you know, su sort of super storage of, uh, uh, of carbohydrates. Let's, let's, you know, let's, let's talk about that in that capacity. And, and here we're talking about something completely different, which sounds really space age, I guess, uh, in a sort of a physiology, uh, biochemistry sense. So let, yeah, take us through that. I mean, what, is, what is this? So 
menthol itself um, fits within, I guess, a broader category of ergogenic flavors that we're starting to see emerge within the literature and people are starting to use within practice as well. So we've already got some quite good evidence around carbohydrate, thanks to the likes of Asker Eukendroop, James Carter, and, and various other people who've started to we're starting to ask some real good questions in that area, to be honest. And I think that's where I'd like to get menthol to over the next couple of years. We then have caffeine, which we know the ingestion of um, has proved ergogenic in many ways and can have multiple downstream effects. Um, and then we've also got capsaicin as well, which is the chili compound that really gives it that fiery heat. And we, we put menthol and capsaicin together, really, um, because they are antagonists of each other. Um, so what those sort of flavor or taste molecules do, um, they basically turn on areas of the brain or stimulate receptors that are also associated with other physiological function. Um, and we think this might come from like evolutionary economy. So it makes sense for you to have a pathway that's going to do more than one thing or a receptor that's capable of detecting more than one thing. Um, and therefore your physiology responds accordingly. So a lot of the carbohydrate stuff talks about this idea of fuel sensing. Um, but even the digestion of carbohydrate starts in the mouth. So we, we know the mouth is pretty important for carbohydrate. When we start thinking about bitter uh, molecules such as um, quinine or caffeine, again, we have some element happening within the mouth, but there are some nice studies that have looked at um, sort of the ergogenic effects of a swill compared to a swallow and shown that you actually need to activate probably more of those taste receptors down the GI tract uh, to get a more ergogenic effect. And then that sort of pulls us into these thermal flavors um, of chili and menthol. Um, they stimulate receptors called TRP receptors, so transient receptor proteins. Um, these send a little signal across the membrane and are largely involved in temperature detection and also involved in pain as well. Um, and we can sort of deceive them, I guess, with um, menthol, chili, that type of stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. I, it is amazing how, you know, historically our focus, whether it was in research or, um, you know, it, 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 in the coalface, uh, in the gym, on the track, it would all be about more or less what you can see, you know, the muscles, the the you know the the, the sort of the, the pounding of the feet and the driving of the arms and everything that goes with it oh well okay so you know we need to develop you know lung function and then we need to take that deeper and go okay well how do we actually increase the body's ability to utilize oxygen and then that goes into things like substrate utilization and then we start to get you know oh well there's a bit of signaling processes you know like um you know, uh, everything there. And then we're like, oh, and then there's negative sides to this, you know, like if we're going to start pounding our um, bodies with antioxidants, that might actually dampen some of those sig signals and so on. And it, it's sort of driving up towards the brain at this point where we're really starting to recognize the brain's involvement in the regulation um, of exercise performance in one way or other. And it's interesting to see. Um, you know how maybe different fields are starting to come together because they were very separated weren't they historically um and and i, I guess especially uh, it's not an area that i focus too much with on this podcast although i have had professor andy lane on talking about sports psychology and 
and so on. But this sort of integration between, you know, the brain and the muscle and nutrition and so on is pretty mind mind blowing. Maybe, um, you know, we could maybe just get back into that a bit because, you know, of late one area of interest in sport and exercise science and nutrition and so on has always been on this concept of fatigue. Um, you know, is, is this a central, you know, is there a central sort of governance of this process? Is there a peripheral thing? Where, where does this fit in that whole spectrum? So I think, um, in the work that I've been involved in recently, we try and take a bit of a, a blended approach to that and acknowledge that different things maybe limit performance differently in different athletes. Um, so coming to your usual sort of, uh, catchphrase of context that athlete provides a context for us to understand fatigue and what really is fatigue to that athlete. Um, some recent papers have, have really sort of divided that above and below the neck. Um, so are we thinking about fatigue exclusively in the brain or psychological processes, or are we focusing on uh, what's happening in a brainless model? I think what a real interesting model is, um, I can't remember the name of the first author, but I know Martin Barwood was, was on the review. Um, and they looked at this idea of interoception. So athletes really have a sense of self um, and maybe alterations in homeostasis, whether that be through temperature, exercise, or the stress of exercise over time, um, really pose a challenge to that sort of sense of self. And some of our um, maybe flavor or fragrance interventions help with that and just settle that down and maybe disrupt um, the negative sort of thought processes or negative um, central processes that underpin that sensation of fatigue. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's early days for everyone really on this, on this area, but I mean, given, as you mentioned that I, when you started down this journey there, you know, you were like, there was, Oh, okay. There's just one paper. Well, it's definitely going to be novel. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, how have you, because that must be, that's a challenge in itself, obviously, because it's like trying to navigate, you know, in the desert, you know, with no reference points whatsoever. Like you've got, you know, you've got, you know, it's day and night, but you don't know where, you know, north and south and so on. It's like, how, how have you managed to um, get some sense of direction with this? Um, I think something that was really key to me was just spending time with athletes and, and being an athlete myself and trying to figure out, well, what limits my performance? Or if I go train in warm weather or compete in warm weather, I obviously can't get fit enough soon enough to meet that demand um, posed on me thermoregulatory wise. Um, so I maybe need to think about, well, how am I feeling to tackle this? Um, fortunately, there was some real nice topical work in menthol done around a similar time. So we had a bit more literature in that area to base our, our thought process off. Um, and then just speaking to other researchers who were doing it as well and trying to figure out what they were doing. Um, but I can't really emphasize that idea of, I guess, thinking like an athlete and spending time with athletes and coaches to, to hone the questions that we're asking. Um, and that's something that, yeah, we try and do across, across everything we do, I guess. And I mean, look, you know, there's obviously, as I've just mentioned, there's a, a, an ever increasing sort of toolbox of options for practitioners, coaches, and consumers, obviously. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, you know, industry can get carried away with this. We see that in the sports nutrition field with a ridiculous 
variety of products and supplements, some of which is based on pretty, well, I say some of it, I'm being kind. A lot of it's based on very flimsy or at least over or inappropriately translated um, uh, efforts, shall we say. Um, but, you know, and you mentioned this in the paper, you know, there is a big difference between, um, you know, what, what we see in the lab and um, what we hope to achieve in the real world. But something that isn't often factored in is just how practical the strategy is. And uh, as I said, you, you know, you do mention that quite, quite a few times. And clearly, you know, this is more this, you know, whether it's mouth rinsing for carbohydrates, um, you know, uh, and the various other things that are out there. And we could even talk about, you know, um, nitrate, you know, beetroot shots and so on. Um, with, with this, presumably, is that you saw this as a, as a practical intervention um, when you started your research on this? Was that the, the sort of the primary primary focus is how you know because as i said there's so many things that people can do um how did you see that fitting into into this massive list of options it's yeah it's always been a practical sort of strategy for me i think um however it's only one way to cool an athlete and it's maybe only one way to perceptually cool an athlete um so that's something we need to to bear in mind particularly with the mouth rinsing approach we need to put maybe um, other nutritional strategies that are perhaps more performance limiting before this. And this maybe comes at the end of some people's thought processes. Having said that, um, I think it has a sound, you know, neurological um, mechanism underpinning it. So a lot like, as opposed to some of the more gimmicky nutrition strategies that we may see, um, I think we can always fall back on the guys who've done the good neurology uh, before we sort of jumped on the bandwagon as sports nutritionists. So it's nice to have that, that parachute really that we've got a real strong underlying mechanism, um, which itself has been investigated very thoroughly. Brilliant. Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> I mean, look, it's like I, I, I say one of my, little, I've got a few catchphrases. You've already got one of my early ones context, um, which I would upgrade now. I've refined it um, to relevant. Is it relevant? Mm. um which is you know it, it, it i would expand that to a a, 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 a a sort of a, a thought process a decision making statement you have to make in your head as you can but should you um yeah. which ties very much into what you've you've just said and that is largely going to come down to the practitioner the coaches or the researcher and most definitely the consumer's ability to determine whether or not they should or shouldn't be using this strategy. And in order to do that, they need to understand what it is, what it isn't, the strengths and limitations of, of that tool in the toolbox. Um, hence these kinds of discussions that we're going to have. So we've made that clear that it's not a panacea. Um, um, so let's, let's dig deeper then specifically into menthol. We know that this fits into a sort of this novel group of, um, you know, up and coming strategies that are available like mouth rinsing and, and so on. But we're talking about menthol specifically. And you've already mentioned cooling. Now, a lot of us, you know, we menthol, whether it's toothpaste or chewing gum, mint, whatever, we've already got an idea that it has a cooling, a cooling effect. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it literally cools the body either, um, which it may or may not 
do, um, which you can help us with. But let, let so firstly, what is menthol? Because not everyone, you know, everyone sort of heard it. Um, yep. But what actually is menthol? So I guess the first distinction we need to make is it's not methanol. That's a completely yeah. different thing. And that's... Um, <laughs> uh, methanol certainly has an impact, but it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get that one out of the way first. Well, I'm French. Um, I'm French. So, so uh, menthol is menthe. So yep. menthe. So uh, yeah. So it could be from, um, well, that's a cool place to start. So menthol was characterized um, way back in 1861. Um, by a, a German scientist, and but the paper was originally published in French, and they published the same paper a year later in English. Um, so we've sort of had the, I guess, the chemical awareness of menthol for about 150 years now, if not a little bit more. Um, and menthol itself is an alcohol, but it can occur as an oil as well, um, and it typically makes up about 50% of uh, the oil that we'd extract from like garden mint, spearmint, that type of stuff. Um, the thing that accompanies it is menthone, which is an area that we need to look into. So that's a, another minty flavor fragrance molecule. Um, and that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of where it starts really. Um, it's typically bought in crystal form. Um, and that's what we use in the lab when we're making our solutions. Um, and it's got a, what's quite interesting, um, from the whole flavor point of view as well, it's got similar men, uh, like melting point to body temperature. Um, so that's another reason potentially why it's a real strong fragrance molecule for us because it just, it works, um, or it can be absorbed at the temperature that we tend to function at. Brilliant. Thanks for that. And, and we're going to get deeper into, you know, the mechanisms, how it actually works, why we would or wouldn't use it when and whatever. But just to, you know, because I think what's fascinating about this is, you know, just, I mean, like, you know, how does this even, how does this even work? I mean, you, you know, I've, we've already mentioned you can, you can get menthol or mint or whatever in toothpaste uh, uh, for, for, for those that like to, um, to, uh, to consume alternative cigarettes in the form of vaping you know, there's menthol, um, there's many, um, drinks, um, and foods that are laced with menthol. menthol. Um, so, I mean, firstly, it's quite interesting to, I, I wonder how, is how, how did, how did anyone stumble into this as being something that's more than just a taste or a flavor? Um, and secondly, how, you know, what, what does it, what does it do and how does it actually um, you know, impart some sort of more than a taste or flavor effect on the body that we are going to be interested in, in, in this context. Um, so, oh, that's a real good question. Um, <laughs> right. We'll go, we'll go right back in time again. Um, so 1851, 52 is when we first characterized it. And then by the time we get to the sort of 1890s, we're already seeing it appear in medical literature um, as being used for respiratory distress um, to open up the airways. Um, and then unfortunately, we see the first case of like menthol overdose in 1906. So within about a 40 year period, someone's already gone a bit too hard on it. Um, in terms of, I guess, expanding that medical side of things, um, the 
sensitivity of various tissues uh, started to be investigated in like the 1970s. Um, and really that's where we start to see this idea that the effectiveness of it is inversely related to the thickness of the skin. So that's why we see the mouth being particularly useful, um, but also the lung itself is really sensitive to menthol. Um, so as well as the mouth, we've got the nasal cavity as well. And the way it sort of works in a lot of um, the respiratory stuff is it stimulates our trigeminal nerve, which sort of sits across our jaw, middle of our face and, and through into our eye or just under. Um, so it really stimulates the, the middle and the bottom branch of that. Um, and that's associated with things like temperature detection, um, pain, cooling, that type of sensation. Um, and if we apply menthol to the oral cavity, we get that big sensation of freshness and um, opening everything up. And that the posh name for that, I guess, is nasal patency. Um, but when people have, I'm not too sure how you do measure this, but when people have measured people's nasal openness, um, they don't see an objective difference in it but that subjective difference remains. Uh, you you got to love science and research. <laughs> there are certain areas like how there's a gadget somewhere that measures how flared one's nostrils are. I think that... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm desperate to get hold of one, but I can't quite find one to put it through the research budget this year. So amazing. We'll see how <laughs> so, I mean, let's just stay there for a second because it is amazing. We, you know, you, I guess we take it for granted just how important sensations well the the these you know the the, the 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 ability to taste and smell and of course you know when we just go back to basic nutrition um you know the, 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 i remember oh I'm, i think from day one you know they talk about digestion starts when you look at food you smell food and those stim, you know and of course it gets to the mouth and then there are additional things that happen and of course and because I've read on around on these topics before, you know, there are also defense mechanisms where um, smell and taste can also, um, you know, tell you whether you should stop right there and spit it out uh, because it could be dangerous or, or whatever. Uh, and obviously it takes it to a whole new level where, where even if you're not going to uh, uh, consume it, it still imparts some sort of effect. If we sort of stay on that area, because you've mentioned the trigeminal nerve, you know, um, and of course, like in one of your papers, for example, you talk about the two sort of main ways of, of taking this, which is either, uh, uh, you know, internally or um, obviously, you know, uh, you know, consuming it or, um, uh, sorry, applying it topically, for example, or uh, through a mouth rinse or, or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, what's the what's the mechanism that's occurring there so we um have not just the trigeminal nerve but we've got those trpm8 receptors specifically for menthol so that's yep. transient receptor potential melastatin 8 um so that's involved in in temperature detection of the cold temperature range and you'll see varying um temperature ranges in the literature for that um, typically somewhere between 8 and 28 degrees is the range at which that's stimulated. Um, so menthol activates those receptors and that can impart this, um, it imparts, partly imparts the flavour, but also imparts that cooling sensation as well. Um, and that is different dependent upon the thickness of the skin. 
So that's why we get that um, more pleasant but more potent um, flavor at lower concentrations in the mouth. Whereas we need higher concentrations when we apply them topically and we start to see different effects like alterations in skin blood flow, maybe some irritation, maybe some um, sort of pain relief or um, I don't really want to say that you can tolerate more pain, but it's potentially yeah, yeah, like an right, analgesic yeah. effect. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there's an overload, isn't there? Like with brain freeze yeah. with, you know, certain things. I think that's particularly interesting. So, so, so what you're saying is um, more is not necessarily better. And in fact, this comes down to the response that the body has to um, the awareness or contact of, of, of this, this substance in the body and the resulting impact is this cooling effect. Now, maybe you could just explain that further because you know, it, it's a tricky one with menthol because we think of it as cooling all the time. Um, but what does that actually mean? It's not just a, you know, like, like cool breath, which isn't really cool breath. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 how, how does this cooling effect work and what is the relevance of that? So that, I guess that cooling effect, um, just purely driven from the taste is quite a, a like quite coincidental. Um, we've just mm. stimulated those receptors that really, are associated with detecting that temperature range. And what that does then is pull that tissue down into a sort of feels like temperature within that temperature range. So we don't see, um, we don't necessarily see physical alterations in temperature unless they're associated with things like a reduction in blood flow to that area, um, which at the sort of oral concentrations that we typically use. So 0.01% in most literature. And then in our lab, um, we prefer to go for 0.1% um, just due to differences in dilution method. We won't see alterations in, in blood flow at that, temp, um, at that concentration, so we won't see the alteration in temperature. Whereas when we start sticking it on the skin, we'll see some of these alterations in blood flow. And because we're, I guess, taking warm blood away from that area now or vasoconstricting that area, we may see a slight reduction in temperature in those areas as well. Brilliant. Okay. So yeah, so really what you're saying here is that it's, it's not just a psychological thing. It's not just a physiological thing. There's an intersection where, um, you know, as we, we said, we're bringing the brain and the body together in this sort of psychophysiological combination. And the reason why I wanted to spend a bit of time on that is because it is pretty confusing, isn't it? Particularly to the consumer. Um, particularly with everything we think we know about menthol and, you know, you some sort of phraseology that goes with the marketing of menthol products um, is where I, I feel there can be a misunderstanding as to how this can be used and, and applied with a degree of effect. So we've, we've sort of touched upon the mechanisms of action. You've, you know, you've, you've made it clear that there is a difference between topical and oral ingestion of this um which i presume isn't just a um psychophysiological thing there's also a practical angle there is that right yeah very much so i think we need to think about the situation in which we'd apply those um and they might be might be very different so there's some real nice research done with the higher topical concentrations that has looked at um, applying that prior to water immersion for instance so it might be that we actually want to divert blood flow away from the periphery 
and keep someone's core temperature warm. Um, so menthol is a great way to do that. And prior to the Olympics being cancelled, um, we were having some conversations around, well, how can we use this for some of those longer endurance events? Um, particularly where you're either running, um, where you might have airflow going over that area as well. So if you've got someone who's a real high sweater, do we need to maybe consider applying menthol early in the race and then let that sweat response sort of come out over time um, once the effects of the menthol have worn off? And then the topic, um, sorry, the oral side of things. Um, yeah, maybe we should talk a little bit about the practicality of the topical and then we can revisit the oral. Yeah, yeah. yeah a bit to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get into the mechanisms of action a bit more. You, in one of your papers, you you've sort of broken this down to um, several psychophysiological adjustments, which includes thermal, ventilatory, analgesic, and arousal effects. I think they're all worth exploring. Um, what I'm trying to do here is, and use my phraseology, is to contextualize, visualize what this thing is. Um, and before we get deeper into how it might work, that this isn't necessarily something that um is suggested or intended for any kind of of exercise or or activity is it there are certain areas that you feel this is much more relevant um before everyone starts buying menthol products yeah. what, what what are the sort of you know areas of application and then we can look into those psychophysiological you know mechanisms with a bit more context so there's um the majority of evidence where we've seen it to be effective is in endurance activity. Um, so typically anywhere between 20 and 70 minute type activity is what's been, been studied thus far. And that's across a range of exercise modalities um, from, you know, running, cycling. And then there's some real nice um, work done by Olivier Hughes group over in Guadalupe, which has looked at sort of stimulated triathlon performance or um, training sessions for triathlon. Um, and they've done some quite complex work, which I think we, we can get into um, later on. Um, so real heavy focus on the endurance side of things. There was a real nice paper came out a couple of years ago by uh, Ollie Gibson, who was the lead author. And they looked at uh, intermittent sprint performance and found that menthol wasn't particularly effective at improving the performance per se, but it did improve some of these thermal and perceptual measures. Um, and then... There's been no real research to date that's looked at the strength or power side of things, um, at least in the mouth swelling. In terms of uh, the topical application, we might see like an accelerated recovery from that type of activity due to um, an effect potentially on DOMS. Um, but having said that, we're going to submit a paper later this week, which further maybe disproves the effect of it on um, that strength and power performance. We mm. just found some, it worked maybe for like three out of our 20 participants um but you know that could just be down to experimental chance really mm. yeah well that's the yeah i mean it's difficult isn't it to perform research critics will always say you know the epidemiologists would be like how how can you guys in sports science sports nutrition even come up with some of the conclusions you have because you've got such small numbers but obviously it's incredibly difficult to find athletes um uh even in a college setting and particularly if we go down the more elite pathway it's almost impossible and at the end of the day um you know we have to accept that some of this is going to be potentially um you know um oh i'm about to lose the uh, the thought in my head you know placebo nocebo 
effect, um, which then gets a little bit complicated. And we've had, you know, I've done podcasts about this before. Um, but if something's going to have a positive impact one way or the other, it's definitely worth, <laughs> it's definitely worth, worth taking. What, what just quickly, uh, cause it's in my head. What about the potential for doping though? Is that you mentioned that as always, someone always has to overdo it. And, um, in the past, uh, some Muppet has managed to, um, to have a nasty effect with overdose. I mean, firstly, I wouldn't even have like, can you overdose on menthol? Obviously you can, you mentioned it's an alcohol. So there's obviously a toxic profile there. Um, And you've also um, made it clear that there's a dose, uh, sort of a dose response here, which actually, um, you know, more is not necessarily better in terms of where we see the real benefits of this. Just quickly about sort of toxicity and doping. Is there any issues, worries that we should have on that? Um, So from a toxicity point of view, we'd need to consume like a relatively large amount. on the topical side of things, there's been no real adverse effects seen um, in concentrations up to 8% from the topical side of things. Um, but then having recently tried some capsaicin stuff at similar concentrations, um, as soon as you start sweating, that may alter. Um, so I think we need to you know, always trial these and look for those adverse effects. Um, Menthol mouth swelling itself, obviously, it's only in the system for a very short period of time when we get rid of it. So there's um, the the risk to the athlete there is maybe the alteration in thermal perception over time. Um, and we can unpack that when we get into this idea of thermal sensation and thermal comfort a bit, if you like. Um, in terms of doping, this is I've had a couple of interesting conversations around this recently. And with it being an alcohol, um, it's not so much we maybe wouldn't be too bothered um, about the menthol itself, but it's what that menthol can then be a vehicle for um, that we could potentially sort of sequester in some of those solutions that we might be using. Um, so I always try and be as transparent as possible, not just in, in my research, but in my practice as well. Um, and any athlete that we work with, um, we provide things like batch numbers of the menthol we've used, exactly what's in it, the concentration, and provide sort of a, an official looking letter. Um, to say everything's been done to minimize risk to this athlete that they can then take to competition with them. Yeah. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? When we're dealing with nutrition or food, you know, what constitutes as something that's perfectly natural uh, and what isn't and and so on. But I guess uh, if there's any doubt whatsoever, obviously you need to check with someone who actually knows. (laughs) Uh, um, Okay. So I do want to, get into some of these mechanisms of action because it'll help us understand you know uh, how and in, sort of how and why these things may do what they do and this allows us to choose and select you know the tools appropriately as and when they may have some some benefit so we mentioned um the psychophysiological um impacts that include thermal ventilatory analgesic and arousal effects so let's just go through that that list because this i think is where it really gets rather interesting because um this is also a, a a sort of a package of effects as well it's not just one thing on its its own um right so uh thermal you've already mentioned briefly about thermal but let's let's take a deeper dive into the thermal uh effects of of menthol then please so i think with um the thermal side of things we've really got two 
arguably three predominant sensations that we try and assess. So the first one's thermal sensation, second one's thermal comfort, and then we'd maybe stick thirst in there as well. Um, thinking as practitioners and how we can use this alongside other nutrition strategies, I think monitoring that thirst is particularly important. Um, so from a thermal sensation point of view, menthol will reliably decrease your thermal sensation. So it'll make you feel cooler. Um, and the difference really between that thermal sensation and thermal comfort, if you imagine being lied on a sun lounger, you can be aware that you're hot and you can be comfortable being hot or you can be uncomfortable being hot. So the awareness of how much heat that's on you, that's the thermal sensation element. And then how comfortable you are within that is that thermal comfort element. Now there's a lot less sort of consensus around the thermal comfort element um, when it comes to menthol because I think thermal comfort is also involved in things like how wet your skin is, airflow, um, rate of increase of temperature, and some of these sort of complex things that we can uh, design our experiments to really manipulate. Um, but that effect on thermal sensation is pretty, pretty consistent and in some individuals pretty powerful. Um, and what we're trying to do at the moment is really expand on that and really look at the location of that thermal sensation um, and how that maybe changes over time, or we were before, um, the pandemic kicked off and, and kicked us out the lab. Mm. Um, and then thirst is a bit of a funny one um, because menthol feels cool and particularly within the mouth. Um, it almost acts as a water mimetic. Um, so we get this thing almost like we've got a little ice cube in our mouth in some people, maybe not quite that strong for others. Um, and that will be concentration dependent. But thinking as sports nutritionists, that maybe puts limits on how or when we would use menthol in training or in competition because that sensation of thirst can be a pretty important indicator for us yeah and that's that's the one that i think you know this, this is a classic example of uh, absolutely let's have this in our toolbox but let's absolutely know the strengths and limitations because this is where we can do more harm than good at times isn't it with that lack of appreciation for 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 this um so maybe you could just quickly dive into uh, okay, so we, we can guess where the, the pros are, but the cons are worth looking at. Um, and what, what scenarios do you think that that might be um, an area where we need to be a bit more careful? Um, you know, what, what are the risks and, and how, how, how might they play out, do you think? So I think any um, spot where we've got the risk of heat stroke or um, increased sort of heat strain and heat stress, uh, we need to be mindful of how we use menthol in that scenario um and the sort of phrase we use in the lab for athletes is like do they run hot um so we need to be real careful for athletes who perhaps run hot or maybe athletes who don't run hot and understand what's normal for that athlete so what i mean by that is does their core temperature during exercise increase rapidly and can they sustain that is that comfortable for them are they exercising normally at these elevated core temperatures um, and I've really changed my thinking and tried to change some others thinking around this um, as some real nice recent papers that have looked at sort of live core temperature monitoring during events such as the two down under um, and seeing these core temperatures over 41 degrees now. A couple of years ago, we maybe wouldn't think that was normal. Um, and then if we throw something like menthol in the mix, does that potentially push most athletes over the edge to these potentially harmful core temperatures or is an athlete holding back because they think, Oh, I'm going to feel too hot. 
Mm. And therefore it's limiting their performance. So if we can then insert menthol at that crucial moment within their performance, um, do we get them over the finish line faster? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's exciting that, that, you know, we can have that effect, but it's also a little frightening that people may misuse that appropriately. So I guess there's, you know, there needs to be a label on this saying, please use with um, some expert support. Um, So I I, just, while we're on the thermal thing, um, and I guess this is something we'll touch back in a bit later in terms of a practical you know, application and usage of, of menthol. Um, but when combined with other cooling methods, like you mentioned an ice cubes, you know, ice slushies, slurries, whatever you want to call them, um, cold drinks, um, you know, obviously one great thing about menthol is you can add it to stuff. Um, it, you know, it, it can, it, and, the, and also the, it might improve the taste for some people as well. So there's sort of a, a multiple benefit package there. Um, what about that side of things? So the key paper for this um, is by Florence Riera, who's on um, an upcoming consensus statement with us and is also on a, a meta-analysis that we published a couple of years ago now, um, looking at some of this stuff. And she's from Olivier's lab in Guadalupe so they have real nice tropical conditions so perfect to investigate this type of stuff Um, and they have a real good bunch of athletes that go out and train there I think as well and they did a real nice study um, looking at cycling time trial performance and took some splits through that and what they did it must have been a real pain to do actually but six time trials um, so water cold water and ice and then stuck menthol on top of each of those conditions as well and what we saw is as um, the sort of drink temperature decreased with the addition of menthol performance would increase. Um, so the greatest rate of improvement relative to that water only condition um, was with menthol with the ice slurry. Um, so not only are we getting this physiological cooling that's being accompanied by a perceptual cooling effect. Now they used pretty low concentration menthol. So about half what we do in our lab, 0.05% within that beverage. Um, and i think when we've tried to up that alongside the ice so getting around about that 0.1 or slightly higher concentration that does tend to be where people start to experience the old brain freeze Mm. um because it's just too aggressive for some people um so that might be where we look to scale it back to a cold water or we might even look for some more innovative solutions such as putting in a gel or alongside like a cold carbohydrate drink because we know the carbohydrate acts as an antifreeze itself so we can pull that drink temperature down, still have it as a liquid, and then maybe put some menthol on top of that. And the, the, the brain freeze is a sort of a sensory overload. Um, just what, what is that? If you can just quickly describe. Yeah. So um, the posh name for brain freeze always escapes me. Um, but it basically turns on multiple nerves all at once and sends this really big painful um, sensation. Um, so we've overloaded those TRPM8 receptors. We've overloaded that trigeminal nerve, the palatine nerve, um, and our brain's gone. Oh, it's a bit, bit much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's great because the, you know the body does try and communicate with us. <laughs> yeah, probably not in a Yorkshire accent, but that's uh, you know. Well, that goes without saying. It would it would be it would be overly posh if you if you had uh, more of my accent, I guess, in that regard. Um, so, okay, so let's just move on from thermal because that's clearly, I can clearly see 
um, some some value when used appropriately. Um, ventilatory effects definitely not a surprise. Um, I certainly remember when I was a child, I was given menthol um based uh things when i would have colds or stuffy noses or or whatever you know like chest rubs and so on and so forth so i guess that wasn't just a you know a, a, an old wives tale so to speak i mean the, the you know there seems to be something there how how you know what is that um from a scientific perspective and, and why is that a potential benefit to performance so i'm not necessarily too sure that it's a a, a benefit in and of itself um, I don't necessarily think that this increase in ventilation that we see with menthol is beneficial and certainly not in, in all athletes. Um, but what happens is the menthol, when you ingest it um, particularly, can act as a bit of a relaxant to some of those, um, some of the musculature around the ventilatory system and um, can perhaps decrease a bit of the neural drive to those systems. So we have this like compensatory increase in ventilation as a result of that. Um, I think in more elite athletes, we've maybe seen this to be slightly problematic. Um, so we do, we use differential RPE um, for our testing. So sort of legs, lungs, and overall. Um, and we might see like this increase because people are suddenly breathing maybe more frequently or the ventilatory signal isn't quite what they're used to in these well-trained athletes. Um, it's maybe not as, as ergogenic in that population because the signal isn't quite what they're used to. Um, as you know, you know, the more well-trained an athlete becomes, the more in tune they get with that, that inner monologue and, and sort of the inner signals um, that they're monitoring all the time. Um, whereas I think in lesser trained individuals, that increase in ventilation maybe says, oh yeah, I can do this. Mm. Um, and it allows us to meet the demand of the exercise or feel we're meeting the demand of exercise sooner. Um, and therefore is seen as ergogenic in that population. So, so clearly this is on a case-by-case -case basis. And as with most strategies in sports nutrition, um, you know, if we're going to use these, if we can justify you know, a trial, so to speak, um, then, then we just try it and see because everyone's going to have a different impact. But it's not a panacea, obviously, for everyone. And um, you've made that clear. Okay. Um, this one's the, 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 this one I find really interesting. So the analgesic um, impact of, of this product, um, you know, how, how does it impart analgesic effects and, and why would we want an analgesic uh, impact or, or don't we want that? Um, so this mainly comes back to the topical application as opposed right. to the oral application of menthol. Um, so we don't just simulate the, trpm8 receptors what we might also do is overstimulate some of the um, receptors that might typically be involved in things like you know your calcium release from your sarcoplasmic reticulum and um, all that jazz which would usually con help to conduct a neural signal um, but menthol sort of depolarizes that membrane um, and puts a gap in the signal is probably the best way to explain it um, so then we potentially affect the contractility of that muscle but also the ability of that muscle to um perhaps say oh i'm under a bit of stress um and that's sort of how that pain mechanism or analgesic um, mechanism is interfered with um so it's particularly been used in studies that have um induced doms through the typical sort of eccentric protocols or overload protocols or drop jumps that type of stuff 
Um, and then it's been in, used in recovery from those and tracked over a couple of days. So Jason Gillis has done a couple of those. Um, along and that's with topical Top- though. So yeah, that's topical. So yeah, okay. yeah. So that tends to be applied to the muscles, obviously, that are used in uh, that activity. Um, and again, I think there's some maybe interesting work to be done around sort of cold shock response and water immersion in that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, I can see that having some value again, thinking back in the old days, you know, after some heavy training or rugby or whatever, you know, your legs hurt, uh, which is a distraction. And, um, I can see how that, that can affect, um, you know, your, your drive and motivation, um, you know, from a more sort of, a, a, a yeah. Uh, I can see that. So arousal. Um, again, this is a really interesting area for this. Tell us more about, I mean, you've already mentioned right at the beginning, you know, some of its ability to arouse, so to speak. What, what, what does that term mean? How does it do that? And, and how might we use that to benefit? So that term arousal in this context, um, menthol has been looked at in a lot of almost like mundane tasks or problem solving activities um so things like i think there's a couple of papers that i looked at like brain puzzles there's been some driving tasks and um, there's been a couple in in firefighters as well so quite work specific but still within that environmental ergogenic type area um, and what mental allows us to do there i think because we have this sensation of freshness we can maybe concentrate on what we're meant to be doing a bit better um, so there is a classic study that's looked at, um, I think it's mentholated versus non-mentholated chewing gum in students about to sit an exam or revise for an exam. And because you're just a bit more awake, a bit more alert, you can maybe take in some more information. Um, so I think trying to apply that more to a sporting setting, um, that's where we started getting interested in some of the strength and power activity and it just hasn't quite materialized yet. Um, but I think maybe in some skill dependent activity, we need to consider this as well. Um, or complex activities where decision making is involved could be quite useful. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, because there are other things that you can take like caffeine. Um, but, uh, you know, a problem with caffeine is the danger is, is, you know, taking it and then your start time of your event, for example, gets changed. Uh, and then you've got, you know, and that we've seen that in World Cup rugby, you know, events and so on. But I'm thinking England rugby a, a few years back now where this has become an issue where you can sort of miss your peak, so to speak, um, and or impact other factors that might be important for recovery. In fact, this is worth mentioning, um, uh, perhaps, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Things like sleep, time of day, um, not just, you know, timing relevant to before, during or after activity, which we can quickly get into on a practical side, but, you know, the, the sort of the other side of it, like I said, sleep, because uh, you mentioned arousal, is this going to have any potential negative impacts there? Um, not that I'm aware. I'm sure most of us try and brush our teeth before we go to bed. Um, mm-hmm. And there's not been, you know, I don't think too many people suffer sleep disruption because of that. Um, even, you know, commercial mouth rinses and mouth washes will have a, a similar concentration of menthol um, to what we're talking about for sports performance. And if people are using those products before bed, that's maybe not too much of an issue. Um, I think it's, it's maybe, as you've alluded to, slightly more practical um, than caffeine because we, we don't have that um, sort of window of opportunity for it and the effects are somewhat immediate. 
Um, however, when we do ingest menthol, the half-life of the menthol within the blood um, is roughly about an hour or so and then tracks down uh, over time. So we, if we are to ingest it, there is maybe around this sort of hour type window, um, which we are starting to see as a bit of a pattern in the research, you know, over the effects, um, sorry, the time trial durations that it's maybe effective over, um, the duration over which people might compete and thirst may not be a limiting factor, again, fits with it around this hour. Um, so that, yeah, that hour seems pretty golden for us, whether it be concentration or performance at the moment. Brilliant. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, because you mentioned things like caffeine and alcohol where there's also, you know, can be an issue where, well, some people are tolerant or in, intolerant, um, but also, um, and both with caffeine and alcohol, particularly with alcohol, there's that, I think it's called tachyphylaxis, but, you know, it's this process of, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if you've never had a drink and you have a glass of wine or beer, you can feel a bit tipsy. You know, but yep. when you're a hardened drinker like me, uh, you know, it takes, uh, you become an expensive date, so to speak. You know, how, how does that work in terms of uh, sort of dose and effect? Um, and it, it, does that, you know, is, do, you get, do you get great benefits just on a one-off? Or does that need to be trained? Um, take us through that, please. So one of um, the papers we published from my, my PhD was really looking at the development of a menthol solution. Um, and factoring in individuals' preferences for things like this idea of um, you know, freshness, irritation within the mouth, um, mouthfeel of the product, all that type of stuff. And we looked at that in a range of concentrations from um, the 0.01% all the way up to this 0.1% that, that we seem to stick by now. Um, and everyone was really variable, um, but we did tend to see these sort of sensory thresholds around low concentration, so like 0.01%. Um, a mid concentration of 0.05 and then the higher concentrations around about 0.1%. When we unpack that data a bit further, what we saw is that it was really the opposite of what we'd expect. So we talk about menthol being, you know, really fresh and vibrant and all these wonderful flavory words that chefs or food bloggers might like to use. Um, but what the stats really tell us is that people preferred the solution that gave them the least irritation within the mouth. Um, and then mouthfeel was second on that list. And then we start getting into some of these flavor um, type qualitative words. So really menthol is effective, I think, at the dose at which you can tolerate it and it, the dose at which you don't find irritating or deleterious to your, your performance. So it may be more, maybe better to a certain extent, um, but you've got to be able to tolerate it. You've got to be able to stomach it. And that's just like any other sports nutrition product. I think we have that sort of Goldilocks zone for every athlete. Yeah. Test, don't guess. And certainly yeah. don't, don't, don't try this on the, the day or the day or night, night before or whatever of a, of your event. Um, that's always, always critical. Right. Okay. Look, I, you've given us a lot of information here. Um, and uh, I'm going to, you know, obviously everyone's going to have an opportunity to look at your work and read deeper into everything. But if we just quickly focus on some practical aspects of this uh, and, you know, it's almost by way of summary, like, you know, what are the realistically from a science to practice and primarily from a practice, is it, is it relevant? And in what contexts is it relevant? 
um, and and a reminder of where we need to be careful, um, uh, you know, and 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 the ways in which we can actually use this practically. So, in terms of where it's most relevant, I think we need to focus on those endurance sports first. And mm. um, that's where the evidence tends to be. And that can either be in a time trial type setting. Um, and from a topical point of view, it seems if you can apply mental repeatedly, you're going to go faster. Um, there is obviously the practical side of that. You maybe have to carry a little spray or something like that. But if you're willing to get out of an aerodynamic position, for instance, to do that, um, it may be beneficial there. Or if you're out for a prolonged period of time and you just want to feel more comfortable, that might be a strategy for you. Um, same with mouth rinsing in that regard. Um, we tend to see the effects in the endurance realm of, uh, I guess you'd say, moderate to long standard endurance stuff before we get into the, the realms of the ultra endurance, which I know you're, you're pretty interested in. Mm. Um, in terms of where it fits within that ultra endurance context, we've used it in an applied setting um, alongside on-course nutrition for an Ironman triathlete. So we provided the athlete with um, the menthol solution and she would swill on the bike every 15 minutes. Um, got through two 750 ml bottles, I think, over the course of that, taking about 30 mils at a time. Um, but used that alongside on-course nutrition, such as Gatorade products. So really there, it's used as a, uh, to counter the flavor fatigue and, and mouthfeel of repeated carbohydrate ingestion. Um, so it can be good as a, a sort of flavor disruptor, if you like, in that regard. Um, there's no evidence as of yet in the intermittent activity. Um, and I think that's something we need to explore more, particularly in athletes who maybe get gastrointestinal discomfort in that area because there's some real old stuff looking at how menthol may affect digestion or is used as a calmative measure. Um, and then again, nothing happening really in the strength or power realm in terms of performance from a mouthful point of view. Maybe some stuff around topical in terms of recovery. Brilliant. So with all this in mind, you know, obviously you've got your eyes set on more research, more direction for, you know, for what you want to be doing and your colleagues around the world that are looking at this. And I know you collaborate like on this consensus statement for uh, Tokyo. Well, the date has changed on that, obviously. So I know, <laughs> I know uh, that's a whole, I mean, that's just mind boggling how this whole pandemic thing is is going down. But where do you see things going? And um, have, you, have you, you know, have you, have you got any sort of sneaky sort of ideas as to where you think things might go? Um, give, give us an idea about that. It's quite exciting. So I think we need to start looking at maybe the co-ingestion of these products a bit more closely. And what I mean by that isn't just the um, physiological cooling and the perceptual cooling, um, but really looking at can we use menthol and carbohydrate together? I think in terms of um, menthol and caffeine together, we might need to opt for another sort of plant-based stimulant, such as something like guarana, um, because menthol in higher concentrations can be quite bitter, and then we've got the bitterness of caffeine. So we don't want to make it too bitter for someone that becomes an issue. Um, I'd love to unpackage how we can use this alongside heat acclimation a bit more as well. Um, so can we extend some of these benefits that we see from heat acclimation by having an athlete supplement with menthol throughout protocols like that? Um, and then something that uh, right at the start, I said I also head up our polo science research group, which is a bit of a pet project for me. Um, but I'd love to get 
some of this work done in equestrian activities as well, because not only are we producing heat or suffering from uh, radiant heat load, we also are sat on top of something, which mm. is about 500 kgs of um, heat producing muscle. Um, so in that population, it might be really interesting to explore as well. Yeah, the, the, the whole sports nutrition for animals, horses, dogs, etc. is, uh, yeah, I mean, super interesting. Um, well, look, listen, Bryce has been awesome. Um, I, I know I and everyone listening has gotten a whole lot more knowledge about this whole topic of uh, menthol and just this whole growing area of these novel strategies, you know, like, you know, in this sort of bag of of um of other strategies like carbohydrate mouse you know swilling and so on and so forth and like you say they may end up being combined at some point down down the road um if people want to uh follow you uh you're active on social media like twitter for example do is that, what do you recommend for people to follow your work yeah so twitter is probably the best one um for me or research gate as well um my email inbox is always open but twitter i've got the very um sort of tina turner like twitter handle of simply russ best um, <laughs> and then um I, to be honest i probably wouldn't follow me on instagram unless you want photos of um, my beagle or my baby so uh, not too much sports nutrition goes on on there unfortunately but well you yeah, know twitter, sports nutritionists, sports scientists are a funny lot you never know what what keeps them amused um well, look, that's brilliant, Russ. Thank you very much for your time. I will tag you uh, when I publish the podcast and I'll link all your, you know, your research gate and papers and, and so on um, for people to check back to. Uh, and they can access that at our uh, website at the Institute Performance Nutrition, which is www.theiopn.com and just uh, click on podcasts and you'll learn about the podcast and get access to everything via there where you can also get access to our new videos and, uh, and of course, our um, advanced uh, professional training and education program for sport and exercise nutritionists, um, which is uh, a great complement to uh, academic studies in, in the field. So I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode of um, We Do Science back to you very soon. And uh, once again, thank you, Russ. Cheers. No, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.